You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be hailed by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. All right, we're continuing our series, Belong, uh, talking about what it means to belong in an age of division and isolation. Uh, also, for those who, at the end of this series, uh, consider this your church home, as I mentioned last week, this is serving as a prototype for our membership class. So, as I mentioned, it would be impossible to gather all of us into a membership class. So, this is serving sort of two uh, purposes, sort of tongue-in-cheek here. We're talking just about the vision of the church and, and speaking to the masses in one sense, but we're also speaking to the, the members of this church who, uh, at the end of this series, are going to say, this is, uh, this is my church. I want to belong. I'm joining this church. And so this is also serving as those membership classes. Does that make sense? Okay, there was a little bit of confusion about that last week, so I just will continue to clarify that. Uh, we're looking at Acts 2, and we're told in Acts 2 that on the heels of Pentecost, a very powerful moment in history, a day where the message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is proclaimed in many languages. It tells us that men and women from various backgrounds are saved from their sins. They're baptized into the faith. And as the dust of Pentecost settles, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the first thing that we're told about this church that sort of emerges as the dust of Pentecost settles is this. It's found in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so we see a church emerging that is devoted, but specifically to this, to the apostles' teaching. Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, goes on in verse 44 to tell us this, and all who what? Believed were together and had all things in common. And so this sets an extremely important foundation for the church. What we are reading of right here has been a foundation that was set in a way where now God continues to build his church. Even what we see here today is a result of what God graciously did in this day, causing this church to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, my family and I had a, a barbecue and a bonfire in our front, years, uh, front, year, front yard a few years back, and we invited people from the church and also people from the neighborhood uh, to come over, and the desire was really to uh, connect with our neighborhood relationally, and sure enough, the topic of faith came up. And I remember having a conversation with one of my neighbors that struck me at the moment and has stuck with me since. And he said something to the effect of this. He said, I cannot shake this whole Christianity thing. No matter how hard I try to, like, get past this whole Christian faith, I can't shake it. I, I, I can't ignore it. There's just one thing I can't get over. And so I asked him, okay, well, what's that one thing? And he said, the martyrs. And I said, yeah, the martyr. Wait, what? <laughs> Why the martyrs? Like, what, 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 are you, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, think of, think of all these men and women who chose to die rather than to deny their belief. Countless, thousands upon thousands of men and women chose death rather than just simply deny their belief. Like, all they had to do was recant, and they would have lived. But many of them did not. And he was saying, you know, if, if they had made this up, if this was just something that these people had fabricated together, the founders would have created some other religion and some other story that ended differently than all of these people dying for the sake of this thing. If I was going to come up with religion, it would not end in me dying for that faith. It would end in me being fat and happy and wealthy for the rest of eternity. And so he's saying this, he's saying there had to have been something true that gripped them. 
They, they had to have just seen something and experienced something that was true. History tells us that there was a man named Pliny the Younger. So don't think some sort of San Francisco Bay Area craft beer right now, but an actual person. Uh, there was an, an individual named Pli uh, Pliny the Younger who was served as the province governor over Bithynia Pontus in somewhere around the, the beginning of the second century. And uh, Pliny the Younger was very concerned about what Christians were doing in the Roman Empire and specifically what Christians were going to do to the Roman Empire, how they were going to undermine the culture, undermine the, the, the power of Rome and their cultural norms and values and that sort of thing. And so what he did was he took particular legal action against the believing Christian community and employed something called cognitio extraordinum, which meant that he uh, cast off all due diligence and due process, no warrants or anything like that. He essentially just beckoned whoever he wanted, questioned them, and decided to get, give them whatever sentence he, he desired. And so what he was doing at this time is he was calling Christians before him, and he would ask them a very simple question, are you a Christian? But he would warn them. He would say, okay, I'm going to tell you this right now. Before you answer this, just know that depending on how you answer this, you could die. So if you answer yes, you're going to die. Okay, are you a Christian? And many men and women would say, yes. And he would say, wait, wait, wait. Maybe you didn't understand the question or how this thing is working here. If you answer yes, that's when you die. Not if you answer yes. Yes. And he would ask these people multiple times until they were finally executed. And so to Pliny, the younger, belonging to the Christian church and confessing the Christian faith was nothing less than a capital offense. And so there's this buzz about what Pliny the Younger is doing. And so he writes back to the emperor of Rome to explain what he's doing to make sure that, you know, he's got the blessing of Rome and make sure there's no confusion. confusion. And we actually have the letter that he wrote back to Rome recorded in history. And this is what it says. This is Pliny speaking. Those who confessed, speaking of confessing Christianity, those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed, for I had no doubt that whatever the nature of the creed, it didn't really matter to me, stubbornness and inflexible in, uh, obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. So this is what Pliny is saying. I don't really care what they believe. What I'm bothered by is how stubborn they are in their faith. And that needs to go away. We need to wipe this thing out. That kind of stubborn, inflexible obstinacy needs to go. The crime that cost them their life was an inflexible belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A, a refusal to budge. A refusal to fudge this thing. Unwilling to flex what they believed. But here's the good news. History tells us Rome fell. And as we're seeing right now, the church carried on. Pliny's dead, last time I checked, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is still alive today. The fact that we here have the word of God and we're proclaiming the word of God meant that Pliny died and Pliny was wrong and the Christian church lives on. That we've been founded on something even more powerful than all of Roman Empire, the Roman Empire and all of its pomp and power and error. The church is a community that believes together. And this was the foundation that was set in the early, church, uh, early years of the church that led to the rapid and expansive growth and global growth of the church as well as its 
sustainability throughout the years. If you think about it, God has brought his church through a lot of things over the last couple thousand years. God has brought his church through seasons of challenge and persecution, and by his grace, he will continue, continue to do so. But here's the caveat. He will continue to do so as the church devotes themselves to believing together. God is going to sustain this thing. We believe it. But the means by which God is going to use is a devoted, believing people that stands in the face of Pliny and all of his arrogance and says, yes, yes, yes. Take my life, if you will. But for me, this is just the beginning of the eternity that Christ has secured for me. Stubborn, loyal belief. And so for this reason, shared belief serves as the foundation of our belonging. And so as we're getting into this belonging series, last week was an introduction that we're beginning with what I, I believe is really a, a capstone, not a capstone, but a cornerstone to this conversation. And it is the, the, uh, the, uh, the essential na nature of believing together as the foundation of our belonging. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a few aspects of believing together as the Christian community. You guys with me? All right. The first thing, if you are taking notes, is this. Believing together is both inclusive and exclusive. Believing together is both inclusive and exclusive. Look with me in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all, emphasis mine, who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So in other words, what Peter is saying here is whoever will listen, listen. So here's the question. Who is the, Christ, the message of the Christian faith for? Anyone and everyone who will listen. That needs to be said, and that needs to be said as clearly as possible. The gospel message is for anyone and everyone. Can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. The message of Christianity is not reserved for the religious elite. The message of Christianity is not reserved for the particularly educated individual. The message of Christianity is not reserved for a particular demographic or, as we see in Acts, even a specific language. In fact, as Peter begins to recite an Old Testament prophecy found in the book of Joel here, we're told that men, women, young, old, slave, free, all people, all flesh are welcome to hear this message, believe upon Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and belong to the kingdom of God. Young, old, man, woman, slave, free, all flesh, all people. Look at me in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that what? Everyone. I'm going to need you guys with me today. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter where you're coming from, who you are, what your background is, what you're stuck in right now. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Can you find any more inclusive message in all of the world than that? No. All. This is an extremely inclusive message, and yet, at the same time, the flip side of this coin is that it's an extremely exclusive message. 
Look with me in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now Peter is communicating, this message is for all, but here is the door to belonging. This is the gate to belonging. This is the entrance into belonging to God's people and God's kingdom. Here we see in Acts that there was a certain set of teaching that shed light on the ancient Hebrew scriptures. One specific set of teachings. We see that it was a specific set of teachings that led men and women to being saved. A specific set of teaching that dramatically altered the course of these people's lives and, and what seemed to have the ability to bring this tight-knit, loving unity among otherwise divided people. These people that are gathered together and devoted shouldn't have been in the same room, and neither should we if you think about it. Neither should we. But this was the message that had the ability to bring this tight-knit, loving unity together and still has the power to do so today. Amen? One particular message that centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so in this sense, this is a narrow, and don't forget Jesus was not afraid to use that word, narrow, set of teachings and a very specific claim. Jesus does not hesitate to narrow in the truth, to center it around himself. In fact, John 14 records this. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. So no, not all roads lead to God. And no, we're not just all groping around the dark, finding our way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here's the thing. The invitation is extremely broad. The, narrow, the claim is narrow, however. Broad scope, narrow claim. It's not uncommon to hear things like, you know, you believe what you're going to believe, I'm going to believe what I believe, and we're just going to accept each other. Conversations aren't really about, like, what is true as much as it's like, what's true for me? What's true for you? Uh, what, what I want to believe, what you believe, you have your faith, I have my faith. It doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you have faith. You do you, I'll be me, and we'll just choose to be together despite our differences. Here's the thing. While Christians should be the most kind, peaceful, accepting, loving, under, uh, understanding people on the face of the, of the earth, the Bible actually teaches us that our unity, our ability to belong, actually depends on a shared faith. Not, a, not on a you do you and I'll do me and we'll just kind of get along, but a shared, common faith. We see the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So pause. The Apostle Peter is talking about the Christian unity that we experience as a result of the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, what he does is he grounds that now and places it on this foundation found in the very next verse. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. No uncertain terms there, okay? He's narrowing the claim. Our unity is found in a shared belief. Tim Keller put it this way. At the heart of the Christian's view of spiritual reality is a man who gave his life and sacrifice for people who did not believe in him. A man who died asking for forgiveness for the people who were killing him. Therefore, Christianity is an exclusive claim, but it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim because it wants, listen, and hear this coming to you, it wants you to exclusively believe in this man who died for his enemies and asks you to love and care for yours. Exclusive and inclusive. So here's the thing, just a fair warning. There's a really decent chance that we as a church, we're gonna be accused of being a narrow-minded community. The way the culture is moving, the way the pressures are upon the church, like you probably should know this before you're committing to this church, we are going to get some flack. We already have gotten flack. We are going to be accused of being a stubborn, narrow-minded people. But here's the thing. That's not the worst thing in the world. As long as we're also being accused of being broad-reaching in our welcome. Like, I can live with narrow-minded if we're also known for being broad-reaching in our welcome. So maybe the accusation will be they are stubborn-minded, but they've got big, warm hugs. Like those guys, man, they are knucklehead, stubborn, they won't budge, they dig their heels in on what they believe, but they are the most loving people I've ever met. They'll welcome anyone. They'll let anyone, I'm telling you, anyone be a part of this thing. Believing together means... Uh, is, is both inclusive and exclusive. The second thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Believing together means a proper confidence. And now this is an idea that is borrowed from an author named Leslie Newbegin, who wrote a book called Proper Confidence. And he talks about what it means to believe and have doubt, specifically in the postmodern world, that there's a right way to have confidence in what we believe, and there's a wrong way to have confidence. There's a right way and a wrong way to be confident in what we believe. But we believe that confidence in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, uh, listen to what the Apostle Peter says in verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with what? Confidence. Okay. So Peter, as he's proclaiming, and you can hear it in his tone. He's not just saying, like, Jesus died for your sins. He's saying Jesus died because of your sins. So there's this, like, confidence in how he is speaking. But we believe it's a proper confidence. There's a confidence that faith brings, a certain sense of boldness to our claims, which doesn't necessarily make us fanatic or fundamentalists. There's a confidence in what we believe that doesn't make us a kind of people that are known for just being absolutely fanatic and fundamentalist. In fact, I believe God intends for us to have confidence in our faith. Listen again to what the Apostle Peter says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. 
So let all of God's people know for certain. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't battle doubt. That doesn't mean that we won't have moments of unbelief in our lives. But what the apostle Peter is saying is let all God's people know for certain that this is the Christ and the Lord and the Messiah. Know for certain. And this certainty gives us uh, this, this proper confidence. So what does proper confidence look like? I, I want to illustrate it with two uh, characteristics and descriptions that we will know that there's a proper confidence in our midst. Here's the first one, humility. How do we know that we as a community have proper confidence? That we're a humble community filled with humble individuals. I think it's really necessary to mention now one of the most ugly things in the entire universe is spiritual pride. Yeah. One of the ugliest things is smugness, especially when it comes to communicating the truth of God's word. A smugness about our spiritual superiority, about us having it all together and, and what we know and how we are better than everyone else that believes and how our church is so much different than everyone else and our beliefs, we have it figured out unlike every other Christian that has gone before us. It sounds ugly even as I'm speaking it, doesn't it? Proper confidence gives us humility. Think about this. The gospel is the message that God sent his son Jesus Christ to usher in his kingdom to rescue sinners from the destruction of their sin, to renew his good creation. And this is a, a, a message that mentions that it was our sins that were responsible for an innocent man's death. Not just sin in general, it was our sins that held him there. It, were, it was our sins that nailed Christ to the cross. This is a story that removes all opportunities for pride. If you have pride in sharing this story, you're missing the story. Because God brings us down a level or two, doesn't he? To show us that all of, that God has done for us. And so it's important to mention, confidence is not arrogance. Confidence can look arrogant, but confidence isn't necessarily arrogance. It should bring humility in what we believe, knowing that it was God who has made himself known to us and has given us the knowledge of himself. In John, the Gospel of John, it begins with declaring who God is, and it begins by declaring that Christ is the Word, the Word that has existed forever. And the word he uses is logos, knowledge, this understanding, this higher knowledge. And yet it's really interesting that John 1:14, John says, and this word took on flesh and blood and has dwelt among us. And so we're reminded that we don't have the ability to achieve knowledge. Knowledge has to come to us. We didn't ascend to this knowledge of Christ that we have on our own wings of intellect and rationality. Christ came to us in the despair and doom of our sin. He stooped low. The cosmic condescension of Christ meets us in the mire and the muck of our self-destruction and our sin and comes with the word of God and draws us out. How can we be prideful with that kind of message? How can we have arrogance? It's not a knowledge that's based on our intellect, or rationality, or anything in and of ourselves. It's a message that hinges on grace. And so here's the thing. Here's, here's why it removes opportunity for pride. It reminds us that it's not the strength of our belief that gives us confidence. It's actually the object of our belief. 
I don't have belief in Christianity because of my ability to believe. God, help me. My confidence in Christianity is in God's ability to hold me and to keep me. In fact, look, look at what Peter says in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So it's not us first going to God in our knowledge of him. It's him calling us to himself. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of God's choosing. We're reminded in this picture that even the faith to believe is a gift of God's grace to us. I can't even muster up my own faith to believe. Even God had to give me that. And God has to give you that. And when we recognize that it's all a gift of God's grace, pride begins to trickle out and be replaced with humility. Amen? The second thing it produces is gentleness. How do we know that we have a proper confidence because of a, a, a culture of gentleness? Proper confidence means gentleness, and particularly with those uh, who have different perspectives on the Bible. In 325 AD, I was there, um, there was a group of 300 bishops that gathered in Nicaea to make some really important clarifications about the nature of the Trinity. In fact, uh, as a result of these long series of meetings, we get the, the Nicene Creed, which is printed in your bulletin on your lap right there, which has served for many, many, many generations as a statement of Christian faith. And so these 300 or so bishops gather in Nicaea to make these uh, determinations about the Trinity. And this meeting gets super contentious. It gets, it gets heated. People get red in the face. They get angry, especially because of one man named Arius. And this guy is out there saying that Jesus was a created being. Arius is saying that, that Jesus is, uh, when, when the Bible talks about Jesus being this begotten son, that Jesus Christ was created by God the Father, that he's not divine, he's not eternal, he's a created being. And these guys are getting angry. And so as Arius is saying this, he's speaking, St. Nicholas, who isn't so joyful and jolly, gets up in front of God and everyone, walks across the room, and smacks him in the face. <laughs> Some people even say it's recorded that he ripped part of his beard out. So he, like St. Yeah, Saint Nicholas, St. Nicholas is angry. He is mad, slaps him in the face. He had to go to jail. It was really bad. And he ended up having to come back and ask for forgiveness, and he was granted forgiveness. But here's the point. And I wish I didn't have to say this. You don't need to go around punching people in the face. Literally, or figuratively. I've never met a person that was intimidated into Christian faith. I've never met anyone that was manipulated into long-term sustainable Christian faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it would seem that, uh, it seemed to me at least, that the most contentious Christians are those who are actually battling their own unbelief. You ever met someone that argues, but as they're arguing, it's just really clear that they're trying to convince themselves. Uh, proper confidence does not create contentiousness. It creates gentleness. And so we look back in history, we're reminded that the creeds and the councils that gathered, they have already literally and figuratively duked it out so that we don't have to. So that we don't have to today. So when we contend for the faith, which we do need to contend for the faith, we need to fight for the Christian faith, but we need to be reminded uh, that the fight in this sense is, is over. 
We don't need to keep fighting these same battles over and over again because we've been handed a rich lineage of Christian faith that protects us from two things, being offensive and defensive. This rich lineage of Christian faith that's been handed to us is going to stop us from being in people's face, wanting to fight, and being absolutely defensive when we hear something different than what we believe. It protects us from these two polar opposites. And what it does is it allows us to do a couple things. One, it allows us to listen to people that believe differently than we do. How often do we just listen? We respond. We cut people off, we speak over them, we, yeah, 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 but, or as they're speaking, we're ready to have our rebuttal, but how often do we just listen? This creates an ability to just simply listen. What it also does is allows us the ability to learn. It grants us the ability to learn from other traditions within the Christian faith that may differ on some points than we do, and allows us to, to see that our points of agreement are greater than our points of disagreement. It takes away that offensive nature and that defensive nature. How do we know that there's a proper confidence in our lives and in our community? We're humble and we're gentle. Amen? Thirdly, believing together means embodying truth. Verses 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, speaking of uh, the masses, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so as they hear the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and this invitation into the kingdom, what's happening? They're cut to the heart. They're, they're, they're feeling it. They, they felt it as the message is proclaimed, as the gospel is proclaimed. They're being stirred within their heart. It wasn't just intellectually stimulating. It was emotionally and physically moving. Here's the thing. True truth is compelling. True truth moves us. It's not just intellectually stimulating. It moves us. It cuts us in our heart. It activates us. It mobilizes our lives. Leslie Newbegin put it this way. There is no gap between mental action of believing and a bodily action of following. The human person is not a mind attached to a body, but a single being. So my, my objective today is not just to speak to, to, to heads on sticks, but to speak to hearts, to speak to lives, because we're entire beings, not these divided individuals. And what he goes on to say is that the truth that we claim to believe is actually undermined when it's failed to be embodied. In other words, the truth that we claim is totally undermined when we fail to live it out in our daily lives, to see the connection of what's true in eternity with what's true in our daily lives. In a sense, faith and practical response are not two separate actions. Let me illustrate this. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, it says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live. And so it's interesting, this summons to faith. You know, remember, Abraham is the example of faith, Old Testament and New Testament faith throughout the whole Bible. It was counted to him as righteousness because he believed. But here's the interesting thing. The summons to faith, I'm talking really fast right now, aren't I? <laughs> Slowing down. 
The summons to faith wasn't just a summons to think right thoughts. When I say believe upon Christ, it's not just me saying, hey, like, think right thoughts about Jesus. It was a summons to walk. Faith is not less than intellectual. Don't get me wrong. But it is far more than intellectual assent. We see this Jesus calls his disciples. The two simple words that Jesus used to call his disciples. Follow me. Belief and embodied truth. And the same here is in Acts. He says, repent, which is a matter of the heart. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and turn to Christ. But he also tells them, be baptized. Which means to publicly testify to this new life that we've received in Jesus Christ and vow to live out this life within the believing community. And so how did, how did these early Christians respond? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Belief and embodied truth. They were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Belief and embodied truth. James K.A. Smith said this. One of the most stubborn myths of modernity, our time, is the notion that religion is something you believe rather than something that you do. Religion as a belief system was the invention of an enlightenment that reduced Christianity to a set of superstitious propositions precisely in order to discard it. So there, throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been blatant attacks upon Christian faith began in the early years of the Christian faith through the Gnostics that attempted to uh, dissect and separate faith from practical living. That it wasn't really, your body doesn't really matter. It's what you believe in your head. That really the goal is disembodied spirits. We're going to shed the flesh eventually. So what you do with your body doesn't really matter as long as you believe right thoughts. As long as you seek higher knowledge, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Same thing, same thing happens in the Enlightenment period. And now we're under that same threat. But today, it just looks a little bit different. It's called something different. It's called the privatization of our faith. It comes off like this. Just, you believe what you want to believe. Just keep it to yourself. Like, that's fine. Just as long as, like, other people don't need to hear about it. Just as long as it doesn't come into the workplace. Just as long as it doesn't come into your relationships. Just, just as long as it doesn't come into your community. That's fine. Fine and dandy, believe what you want, just keep it to yourself. And so we privatize our faith, like that person, that picky eater that separates their meat and their potatoes and their vegetables and makes sure they, nothing touches. That becomes our life. Faith over here, work over here, relationship over here, entertainment over here, and we, lead, we live these like deeply divided lives. And so we separate faith from work, which means that we believe in Jesus Christ, but we do shady business things. And we separate faith from relationships. So we, we believe right things about God, but we compromise in our romantic relationships. And we separate uh, faith in our friendship circles. So, you know, I've got my church community over here and my friendship community over here, and I make sure that no one meets each other. And on and on and on. We live these deeply divided lives, but God has called us to something better than that. God has called us to live integrated lives, lives of consistency, lives of integrity, where what we believe in our hearts is actually being lived out in our life, where we haven't separated faith and all of life. 
It was commended to you in our, in our time of announcements, but I want to commend this book to you again. It's called The Gospel, and the subtitle is this, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Jesus Christ. And uh, what Ray Ortland does is he talks about a church can have uh, right gospel doctrine, but embody something very, very, very different. In fact, I, I saw uh, him illustrate this in one of his tweets recently. He showed a picture, and it was a picture of a church with a big banner across the back of the church, and it said, Jesus saves. It was clear that they were in a Christian church and gathered around the altar were a group of about 50 men in white hoods over their faces with holes cut in their eyes, filled with the Ku Klux Klan. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. That there's a very real way that the church can separate what they believe on paper from what they live out in their lives. And that's the warning for us today. So I would commend you to go get this book for free. My goodness, it's free, okay? You guys still with me? All right. Uh, one last thing. And then uh, what I want to do is I'm going I'm to call Stephanie running up in just a moment. Uh, the last is this. Believing together means an ongoing commitment to learning. Uh, a, a living church, John Stott said, is a learning church. And so the liveliness of this community is directly connected to our dedication to grow and specifically to grow within our knowledge of God's word. Uh, Barna, no, it wasn't Barna. It was Lifeway Research teamed up with Ligonier Ministries, and they started uh, polling believing Christians. And they asked believing Christians this question. Do you agree or do you disagree with the statement? A church that no longer continues to teach the word of God should still be considered a church. And among those believing, community, uh, believing Christians that were asked, 40% of them said, I agree. 40% said, yeah, they should still be considered a Christian church. Now, I believe that that would reflect a little bit differently here. But that's, that's, that's the water that we swim in today. And so we need to make sure that we are a church that has committed themselves to learning and growing in our understanding of God. Because here's what happens when, when we don't. As N.T. Wright put it, where no attention is given to teaching and constant, lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. What happens when we stop dedicating ourselves to being a learning church? The pressures of the culture begin to steer the ship. The pulpit begins to be a social commentary that is directed by cultural events rather than a place to proclaim faithfully the word of God. And we get caught up in this. And we'll just be caught up in the sway of whatever the most popular topic is in our day. Being a learning, growing church requires that we are dedicated in this. And here's the thing. This isn't just a dedication that the leaders of this church need to make. This is a dedication that you as the members need to make. In fact, look what, look what verse 42 says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It wasn't the apostles that devoted themselves. It was the church. It was the believing community that committed themselves to be a learning, growing people. For them, they had the authoritative teaching of the apostles. They, 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 they got to actually see and hear from the very ones that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have that today. Today, we have the written deposit. We have the apostles' teaching, teaching given to us in the New Testament, which means that we need to be a people of the book. Amen? 
and a people committed to growing in our understanding of God. At this time, I'd like to call up Stephanie Running. I'm going to ask her a couple questions and allow her to kind of just share how this has worked out in her life. So if you guys would welcome Stephanie Running. So you want to tell us about yourself? I forgot to ask you for like a quick bio. Tell us about yourself. What do you want to know? Everything. The, the juiciest gossip and details. All right. Um, <laughs> no, whatever you want them to know. <laughs> um, I'm Stephanie Running, and I'm a mom of two, and I have a 24-month-old, will be almost 24-month, and a three-month-old baby. And I serve in children's ministry, and I help out with the women together. Great. So I'm going to ask Stephanie a couple questions and, um, and just kind of allow her to really illustrate this and how it's worked out in the life of a member of this church. Um, tell us a little, about, a little bit about your faith background and your journey to believing the gospel. Um, I was born and raised in a Catholic church. Um, I attended Sunday school, and I learned about verses and all of that. And I even received all of my um, sacraments in the Catholic church. Um, but I didn't really understand what the gospel was. It wasn't really kind of communicated to me in Sunday school. And it wasn't until I actually consistently started attending church that I was able to actually grasp that Jesus died for my sins and that he forgives me for my past sins, my current sins, and future. What were some of the obstacles to believing that you faced? And then, like, how were those overcome? Um, well, the obstacles, I, so like I said, I was, my family was very involved in the Catholic Church. And so my grandma, who's 92 years old now, she's still a Catholic, Irish Catholic, and it was just the way of life. And so it wasn't until high school that a friend invited me to a Christian non-denominational church. And I really started actually learning what the gospel was, and I really wanted to continue to start learning. And so I asked my parents whether I could continue to go to church with my friend. And they said, as long as I went to church with them and with, and I, I could still continue to go with her as well. So all throughout high school, I was attending mass in the morning with my parents at the Catholic church. And I was also attending um, a Christian non-denominational type service in the evenings. And later on, um, it wasn't until I was about 20 years old that I actually like grasped the gospel message. And so later on, I um, asked my parents if they would go to my baptism with me and I never expected them to go, but they actually ended up attending. Um, but I won't go into that whole story. <laughs> but until they moved away, they were a part of this church because of yeah. You so that I step went. Yeah, I got baptized at Reality Stockton about um, five years ago, maybe four years. And um, they started. They actually kind of understood what this was about, and um, didn't feel like I was like walking away from a religion. Um, they realized, they understood that I was actually starting to understand the gospel by going here. And um, they actually started attending the reality, bringing my nephews. Uh, my nephews were in children's ministry, um, and then they moved away. Um, they live now live in Monterey, but they, and they still go to a Christian church. Nice. Yeah. Um, so you guys got these doctrine statements as you came in, correct? Okay, so this is our doctrine statement. It's all available online and on our app. Uh, but we, no excuses now, we have it in our hands. Um, so why do you think having sound doctrine or clear doctrine is important and important, especially in the 21st century? Well, I mean, as a wife and a mom of two young kids, it's, I think it's very important to have sound doctrine. 
Um, I find myself on social media and getting a lot of education through that. You know, just how do I navigate tantrums with the toddler? Um, just any, like, relationships, marriage, all of that. And um, I think by learning and making sure you know what the truth is, it's so important, um, or else the enemy really just will continue to work in your life. Um, and, yeah. Lastly, um, what, what part is community played in your journey of faith and growing in your belief in the gospel? Um, well, I mean, honestly, I probably wouldn't be here without community today. Um, five years ago, a really close friend of mine actually invited me to a service at Reality Stockton, and um, I was able to meet people and quickly got plugged into a community group. And then shortly after that, I started serving in children's ministry, and I actually got to understand the gospel even in a very real way, serving alongside others, getting to know people in this community. Some of my close friends are in this community. And um, yeah, I think that if you were to just, I would just encourage everyone to just lean on others and the community to just grow in your faith. Would you guys give Stephanie a hand?